There we go. So this morning, we're going to be looking at the uh, closing, uh, uh, the closing remarks in in, in Hebrews. Uh, we're going to be. Lo- I've divided it up. Uh, it's, it's chapter chapter thirteen, verses uh, twenty through twenty five, and uh, I divided it up in the first two verses of that text, twenty and twenty one, is the is a benediction. It's actually a prayer, and then uh, and then uh, um, twenty. 22 through 25 is the uh, is the uh, his closing remarks or the or the uh, final greetings uh, of the letter. So that's where that's where we're going to be looking today. We're going to be looking at those uh, at those verses that bring this text to a close. The theme throughout the book of Hebrews has been. Christ is better. That, the, the actual Greek word that they use that's translated superior, uh, more excellent, so on and so forth, literally means better. That's what it means. And this book is about Christ is better. He is better than, than the angels. He is better than Moses. He is better than Aaron. He is better than Aaron's priesthood. He's, he's above the law. He's uh, uh, not above the law in the sense that he's lawless, but, but that uh, he is over the law. He is the giver of the law. He is the actual giver of the law. He is, he is, uh, he is the sum total of everything. Everything revolves around him, uh, as this book re, uh, reveals. And it basically, it, 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 reveal, it, it goes around two things. It's the, the main characteristics of this book had to do with his priesthood and the covenant. Those two things, the new covenant and his priesthood. He, he is the high priest of a better covenant that was purchased in his own blood. That is the major, major emphasis that runs through this book. So as we come to the close, uh, the author is in this, in this prayer, it's short little phrases, but they're all packed with deep theological meaning. Uh, it's a, it's a very powerful, a very powerful, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, prayer, and then he makes in the second part of the prayer, he makes two requests on behalf of the on behalf of the reader. So that's where we're going to be going this morning as we look at, and then we have his closing remarks in the uh, in the uh, in the final verses, and that's where we're going to be. That's what we're going to be looking at this morning as we uh, as we go through this book. It's kind of important, maybe too, especially for those of you who haven't been with us going through this. There's some tension amongst the Hebrews. These are Hebrew Christians that he is writing to. And these people are torn between their new faith in Christ and their old trust in the law. And many of them are being pulled by society, by peer pressure, literally, uh, by their families, by the society they live in, to, to embrace or to synchronize Christianity with Judaism. And there's a ton of warning passages in here telling them not to do that, to stay away from that. And, and, and the author appears to be, and you'll see this in these closing words, that he's somewhat estranged from them and is looking forward to restoring fellowship fully with them. Uh, uh, there's been some tension here. It's it's obvious that some of them, uh, you know, that basically for a Jew to become a Christian, he was excommunicated from Judaism, and uh, which is one of the reasons we believe this book, or I believe, this book was written a few years before 70 A.D., because otherwise the, the whole arguments about the temple, the priesthood, and the law would have been kind of mute since they didn't exist after 70 A.D. So, so that's kind of, the, uh, kind of the thrust of where we are, so that you're kind of up to speed. As he, as he closes out these words this morning. Are there any prayer requests that anybody has before we, before we begin this morning? Yeah. 
Um, I'd like to offer a praise. Um, we prayed for uh, my daughter Rebecca, who is in, she's in a meeting right now. But um, Rebecca got a job at Greenfield School District. Oh, good. Yay. Oh, wonderful. I want to tell you guys more about it. And I got a new position as well. Okay. So good deal. We'll cool. You could use your prayers, continue prayers for success in our new, new endeavors. New endeavors. There we go. Okay. I have a question, John. What? Is there a specific reason why you're heading today since chapter 12? Because I mistyped and nobody caught it when they proofread it for me. Oh, okay. <laughs> but it's, it's chapter 13. It's not 12. I didn't realize I'd done that. Yeah, okay. No, it's not. It's not 12. It's 13. Sorry. Just check it. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm not infallible. The Word of God is, but I'm not. So I messed up. Okay. Yeah, change that to a 13. <laughs> okay. Okay. Uh, uh, Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you this morning as we as we come to this text. We ask that uh, by your spirit, you would open you would open our minds to receive your word today, that you would uh, that you would use your word to enrich, uh, to draw closer, uh, to encourage, to strengthen your people. Uh, that they might be better servants for you. All of us would be better servants for you. And we thank you, Lord, that you in your grace and in your in your love and through your mercy you provided salvation in your son Jesus Christ and it is because of him that we come together today to celebrate his victory over death and and the salvation that you have provided and we just would give you all the glory uh, that is rightfully yours and may everything we do today be a praise to your name and we thank you in the name of Jesus amen Okay, so we're going to begin in uh, chapter 13, uh, verse, uh, verse 20 and 21, the benediction. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with every good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ. <clears throat> to whom the glory forever and ever, Amen. So this is, this benediction it comes off of it comes off of uh, uh, of first of all in if you if those of you who weren't with us if you back up to verses eighteen and uh, nineteen there uh, there he makes a prayer prayer uh, the author request prayer for himself from the readers. And he makes a request there of them that he would he would have a clear conscience that he would act honorably and he, and he would stu- soon be returned to fellowship with them. Those are the his requests that he asked them to pray for for him. Now in these verses he's going to pray for them. That's uh, that's the uh, that's where we are when we come to verses 20 and 21. The author is going to pray for his his readers. And it's 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 a it's a text that is just filled with theological emphasis. And it actually ties us all the way back to the very beginning of the book uh, where he said, 
Long ago and in many t- uh, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by the Son, whom he has appointed the heir of all things, whom also created the world. He is the radiance of, his, of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by, by the word of his power. And after making purification of sin, he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high, having become much superior. And that's literally the word better. Uh, much superior to angels as the name uh, as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs so th- this kind of concludes that he started off by saying first of all that jesus is superior to all the angel realm incidentally he and in- he created them he created all that is created he is the creator the creator he is the source by which creation came into existence so now he is coming he's coming to this text and he says now may the peace May, may God, may the, may the God of peace, and that's the first thing we want to look at. He puts it in that way. He makes God the subject here. There's a lot of places in the text where it, it, where, where prayers say, may the, may the peace of God rest on you in some manner. Here he's making it very clear that the author of peace is God. That's, that's the point he's making here. He's wanting us to understand that God is the one who brings peace. It is, it is through God that we have peace. He's the subject. Uh, <clears throat> he is the creator of peace in the lives and the hearts of his people. In John chapter 14, verse 27, uh, Jesus said, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives to you, do I give to you. Uh, let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. I got to thinking about that text. And, it, and Jesus says there, I give you a peace, not the world's peace. And I got to thinking about the world's peace. So I just did a little bit of research to find out about peace in the world. Uh, you know how governments and leaders bring about peace. Here's what I discovered. Since 1945, the end of World War II, there have been exactly 26 days of peace on this earth where there was no literal conflict going on. 26 days. That's world's peace. That's how the peace give, that's how the world gives peace. The world defines peace as I'm not fighting with somebody right now. That, that's the way it defines it. Uh, this is a whole different a whole different aspect. What this is talking about is the fact that we are at peace with God and there is no more intimacy between me and God and you and God. He has ended it. The battle is over. We're now on his team, is literally the idea here. He said, we have peace with God. God has brought us peace. Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. Do not be anxious about anything, but at everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Jesus Christ. This is the idea. God has brought us to peace. In verse 9, he expands this by saying, What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. That's the idea here. The, the first thing he wants these people he wants these people to understand is there is in Jesus Christ we have peace with God. He is he has stopped the battle. We are no longer enemies. We are no longer running away from God. We are we are now with God. That's the idea here. He's we're at peace with him. 
And it's not just a 26-day peace. It's an eternal peace. That's, that's, the, that's the idea that he's, he's wanting, to, wanting us to understand from there. And, and, he goes, and now he's going, to, he's going to expand this to let us know how that peace was established. He, and he, he, says, he says, now may, the peace, uh, now may the God of peace... Excuse me a minute. I'm glad the air conditioner is working, but it's pulling my Bible off the table. <laughs> Uh, he says, now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ. So here again, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ. This is, uh, this is his, his second great doctrinal truth. The first one, of course, is that, God, that we serve the God of peace. He has brought peace between us. But here he's, he's giving us the great doctrinal truth of the resurrection. This is a, a fundamental doctrine to the Christian faith. Without it, there is no Christianity. It is the evidence that Jesus Christ is who he said he was. He rose from the dead bodily. That's the, that's the, that's the, the idea here. We're going, to take, we're going to look at a rather lengthy passage for just a minute. I was only going to take excerpts from it, but I cited maybe it was best to take the whole thing. And it's, it's the First uh, Corinthians chapter 15, starting at verse 1. And, and Paul writes here, he says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He was buried and He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures." And that he appeared to Cephas, and then to twelve, and then to the twelve, and then he appeared to more than five hundred brethren at one time, most of whom are still alive. Some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to the one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But the grace... but. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and by His grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked hard, that, uh, harder than any. Uh, excuse me, I worked harder than any of them. Through though it was not I, but the grace of God in me. Whether then it was I or they who preached and 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 so believed. So now, if Christ is proclaimed as risen from the dead. And can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and and our faith is in vain. And we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it's true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ was raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our faith is futile and we are still in our sins. And here's the important thing. That's the point of the resurrection. That's what the gospel teaches. Christ is risen from the dead. He did indeed raise from the dead. And those who would deny it, basically are saying there is no salvation, there is no hope. And he's saying, and if that were true, your faith would be absolutely in vain. Without, without the resurrection, Christianity is a waste of time. That's what he's telling us here. I actually uh, heard a preacher say one day, 
that even if the gospel wasn't true, he would still want to live his life as a Christian. And I looked at this text and I said, you're a fool. You're an absolute fool. Why would you want to? Why would you want to? But we live this life because it is true. Jesus Christ rose from the dead. He's alive, and he's seated at the right hand of majesty, chapter 1. That's where he is. In fact, that's a theme that runs through this book, where Christ currently is, seated at the right hand of majesty. Apostles, apostles had to be witnesses, Acts 1.12. Uh, and he, uh, Hebrews more... Uh, Hebrews only here really mentions the resurrection, but it refers to it a number of times through the book. It makes reference to it. It, it alludes to it. It, it, it. It's kind of included in the text in chapter one, verse three, where it talks about Jesus being at the right hand of God. That's how he got there through resurrection. He, he ascended to the right hand of God in, after his resurrection, when he, when he ascended into heaven. Chapter four, verse 14 he is called the high priest who passed through the heavens. Literally, he passed through all of the heavenly realm to the throne. That's, that's what it's talking about in that text. In chapter 11, verse 9, Abraham believed that if he sacrificed Isaac, that, that God would raise him from the dead. Abraham believed in the possibility of resurrection. That's, uh, that's another uh, major part of it. In chapter 11, verse 35, it tells us about the women who receive back their dead by resurrection. So that the text of Hebrews, while it doesn't teach the resurrection, certainly alludes to it over and over again. And here in these final verses, the theological point is, our peace with God is based upon the resurrection. That's where it, that's where it comes from. And then he goes on in this prayer, and he says, Now may the God of peace, who brought you again from the dead, who, who, brought, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep. Uh, here he calls him the great shepherd of the sheep. Uh, John ten eleven. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. That's the point of the good shepherd here, is Jesus is the one who died for me and for you. That's, that's, that's the point he's making here. He goes, he's the good shepherd. He's the good shepherd. He's the one who, who would give his life for, for you. Cross-reference, you can see Isaiah 63, 11. Uh, 1 Peter 5, 4, he speaks of Jesus as being the chief shepherd. And Jesus is our high priest who offered himself, who shed his blood, who died as the great shepherd, and thereby obtained eternal redemption. That's where, it, that's where redemption is based, in the work of Christ. And that's what he's praying about here. These are the things he's lifting before God and he, as, he, as he offers up this prayer for this congregation. He, he reminds them of all the important doctrinal truths about Jesus Christ. It's, well, not all of them, but a big portion of all the doctrinal truths about Jesus Christ. He is the one who, he is the one who made the peace that is spoken of in the first part of the verse. Uh, we call it propitiation. Jesus, in his death, turned away the anger of God and made us at peace with him. That's, that's, that's what happened when the good shepherd laid down his life for the, for the, for the sheep. He, he thereby then established an eternal covenant. 
That's the next point he's going to make. And of course, these are the two major themes that run through this book, that Jesus is the high priest and that he is the and the and the eternal covenant that was sealed in his blood in chapter nine. At verse 24. For Christ has entered into the holy place, made with uh, place made with hands, which is for for Christ has not entered into the holy place, made with hands, which are copies of the true thing, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the, the holy place every year with the blood not of his own. For then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the age to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sin for many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who eagerly await, uh, eagerly await him. And then in verse 10, 10, he says, he says this, and by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus once and for all. In other words, here he is making the point that the good shepherd who laid down his life once and for all, it was the end of sacrifice. It was no longer like the Judaistic system that these people were trying to cling to, where it was a continual offering of sin for sin over and over annually. It was a shedding of blood every every year just to cover sin for the next year. Here, sin is removed. Here, sin is cleansed. Jesus was the ultimate sacrifice. He took it all away. That's the that's the point he's wanting to make here. <clears throat> And he says, by that, by that blood, he established an eternal covenant. You know, a covenant, uh, sometimes we get kind of hung up on that word. I think most of you kind of know what it means. Pastor Steve talks about it enough that I think you probably understand. Covenant is basically a contract in our terms today. Uh, God made a contract. And here are the terms of the contract. Um, And in the Old Testament, he had a, a contract. And if any of you have ever been in contracts, you know, whenever you you have a contract and you want to upgrade it or update it uh, and you make changes to it, usually it is to benefit you, not to hurt you. And so God also promised a replacement contract. He called it the new covenant or the new contract. The prophets spoke of it. It was spoken of by Isaiah in chapter 53, verse 3, 61, verse 8. Jeremiah in chapter 32, 40, 50, and 5. Uh, uh, <clears throat> Ezekiel chapter 16, 60, and 37, 26. And he says it, was, it, it became the eternal covenant because unlike the first covenant, which required those repeated sacrifices that we just talked about, this was a once and for all sacrifice that never had to be repeated again and it became eternal by the blood of Messiah not by a goat not by a bull, not by a ram uh, not by sheep but by Messiah uh, Zechariah 
Zechariah wrote in chapter, beginning and <clears throat> talking about the king, uh, the coming of Messiah, in chapter 9, verse 9, he says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is having and having having salvation he is, humble and mounted on a donkey, on the colt, on the fold of a donkey. And then drop down to verse 11 and it says, As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set the prisoners free from the waterless pit. And that's that's what he was talking about here, is that Jesus in his coming, when Messiah came, by his blood of his covenant, the new covenant, the prisoners are set free. We're set free from sin. That's the picture he's he's explaining to them here. Uh, Matthew uh, twenty one five speaks of the the beginning fulfillment of this of this text. So it's this first part of the prayer. He puts all of this in the context that it's the Lord Jesus who is the one who was raised from the dead. He's the one by which we could be at peace with God. He is the one who is the good shepherd, and he is the one by, by whose blood the new covenant was established. Those are the things he prays in this first part of the prayer. And then we go to verse 21, where he makes his request. In verse 21, he says, Equip you with, every good, with everything good that you may do the will, working in us, that which is pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ, to whom the glory forever, uh, to whom be the glory forever and ever, Amen. And here he says he gives basically he makes two requests, or basically he he describes two things that God is doing in their lives. In verse twenty, may God. This continues uh, the idea here that may God could just be put right in front of verse twenty one. May God equip you with every good work. That's that's literally how the 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 uh, the language is used here. Here the author makes makes these two requests on their on their behalf, uh, and he and he talks about in in verse. Verse 20, he's talking about what God has done in the past through Jesus Christ. And now he's talking what God is doing in the present through Jesus Christ. That's, that's kind of the flow here. And the first thing he says, equip you. Equip you for a purpose. The, the purpose is to do his will. That's the first thing he equips you for. He equips you to do his will. Equip is a word that means to make complete. Uh, it can it can be translated prepare, establish, perform, equip. Those all all have that idea. It carries with it it carries with it in some translations the idea of restoration, uh, or it carries with it the idea of perfecting, or or bringing to completion. Those kind of ideas are what is what is being being thought about here when he says equip. So the idea is. May God perform in you that which is necessary that you can do the will of God. Uh, May God equip you with the necessary abilities to do the will of God. May God perform in you His will. All of those things kind of carry through with the idea here uh, that God is perfecting you to carry out His will. All that idea kind of flows in this idea of being equipped. Ephesians, you're probably very familiar with the first part here in Ephesians chapter 2 verses 8 and 9 where he talks about that by grace we are saved and that's not not anything within us not anything that's of value from us it's 
by the will of God, uh, that God did it all. He provided even the faith to believe. And then he goes on in verse 10 and he tells you, he tells you why he did that. And in verse 10, which kind of ties to this equipping here, he says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ, Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Uh, there's the idea here. We're being equipped to do what God would have us to do. Each of us individually, each of us within our own, our own giftedness that he gives us by the Spirit, within our own talents, with our own personality, he is equipping us to do what he would have us to do. That's, that's, what, that's what he's telling him, that's what he's praying for here. He's saying that, that you may do these things. I ran across this little saying, and I think, I think it's kind of, kind of a good reminder. I know it was for me at the moment I read it, because I was struggling with a couple of things. And it says this, The will of God can never lead you where the grace of God cannot keep you. You know, that's exactly right. God is not going to take you someplace His grace can't take you through. That's, that's the bottom line here. Romans chapter 2, verse 12. 1 Thessalonians. First <coughs> uh, Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 3 and 5. All, all would relate to that idea. Uh, that it's God's grace that allows us to do His will. It's His grace that equips us to do His will. It's through Him that these things happen. And He's done it. He's done it. For his good pleasure, incidentally. And he, and he has done it. He has prepared it beforehand. He already knows what the task he has for us. It's all prepared. And then he goes on and he says, May God working in us is the idea here. Working in us. That which what is pleasing in his sight, as I just said, what is pleasing in his sight. He says here, he says that God would work in us what pleases him, what brings him glory, what brings him honor. That's our purpose, to glorify our God. And that's what he's, that's what he's, that's what he's pointing to here, that, that God is equipping us to do the will, to do the things, the tasks that he prepared beforehand for us. And now, and now God is working in us to accomplish those things. Uh, those, are, those are the two, two things he is, he's bringing to light here. Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2 at verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, working out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work his good pleasure. And he goes on to say to do all these things without grumbling and disputing. That's, that's the idea here. He's working to do His will and His good pleasure in you. God is working both His will and His pleasure. And, he, and, and, and John 17, uh, Jesus wrote, or Jesus said, excuse me, John seventeen twenty one. Jesus said, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I 
and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. This is his will, that they may see the oneness of us with our Savior. That's one of the main purposes of God's will is that, that, that we, it could be that Christ is seen in us, uh, that the world sees that. And that's that's part of what he's talking about here. For his good pleasure, he wants the, you to be a reflector of him. That's what he's asking for here. And he says, he says, and then we and then we would we would we would we would show whose we are. Through Jesus Christ, Second Corinthians, chapter fifteen, five, it talks about through Jesus Christ. That's the idea here. Ultimately, the glory is to be demonstrated to Him. Now, the the ESV makes the translation say the glory goes to Christ. Some commentators try to make the glory go that the glory is to go to God the Father. I don't know that it's really a big distinguishing mark. The glory goes to God. That's the point. And it goes to God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all in one. Probably technically here he is saying that we glorify our Christ, ultimately. And then he's, then at the very end, he's, at the end of this, he closes the prayer by saying, Amen. Now, I just this is just kind of a, a little side note. Nothing. There's nothing great theological truth about this. But at any rate... Kathy likes to watch reruns of the Waltons, and the theology in the Waltons stinks. But anyway, um, but at any rate, uh, there's this one scene where they make a prayer and they say, Amen. And Grandpa says, How come we never say, I'm women? Because the text has, because the word has nothing to do with men or women. It's a Hebrew word, Amen, and it means, So let it be. <laughs> Just so you know that. If you were ever wondering that, if you get your theology from the Waltons, which I hope you don't, <laughs> but at any rate, at any rate, uh, I, I found that I found that amusing anyway. So now we go on to the final, the final words of the text, the greeting. And, and here the author says to them, I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. You should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those who come from Italy send you greetings. Grace be with you all. And this is, these are his closing remarks. He begins by saying, I appeal, the NASB says, urge. It's the idea of calling someone to listen intently. In other words, pay attention to what I'm saying. Uh, that's, that's what he's saying here. I, I, w- I, want, I want your attention. He says, he, says, he says, I appeal to you. I appeal to you, brothers. And, and then he uses the term of endearment for Christians, brothers. Uh, that was the common term of the day, uh, brothers. He says, I appeal to you, brothers. Bear with my word of exhortation. Bear with is, a, is simply a word that, tra- that trans- could be translated this way, put up with. He's saying, put up with what I've got to say to you. That's, that's what he's saying here. That's what he's saying to him. Put up with the idea. He's called him to listen, and he says, he says, put up with me. This same verb, incidentally, it's used in the negative in 2 Timothy 4.3, where they're told not to put up with false teachers. That's, that's, that's the idea here. So that, that's the idea of this word. It's kind of an intense word. It means, it means put up with. 
or don't put up with if you put the negative in front of it. But in this case, he's saying, I need you to listen to me. I need you to I need you to hear what I have to say. I want you to digest it. And I want you to bear with me, even if there's some places where you're not agreeing. Because obviously within this context, within this congregation, there were those who are still trying to hold to Judaism. And that hold was, was, was retarding their Christian development. And it was keeping them from being fully committed. And so here he is saying, put up with what i got to say. Listen carefully. That's, that's the idea here. And then he calls it a word of exhortation. Now, he's not talking just to this last word. He's talking to the whole letter. He's saying this is an exhortation, which is an interesting word, because this same word, <clears throat> which the EVS in this text in, in Acts 13-15 uh, translates encouragement, the NASB uh, translates, translates it uh, exhortation, is, is uh, in Acts 13, 15, it refers to Peter's sermon. An exhortation literally is a sermon. Uh, when, when we get up to preach, we are exhorting you. That's, that's, what, that's what the idea is. It's also to be an encouragement uh, to follow the God we serve. Uh, but it, in our terms, it's a sermon. John MacArthur in his commentary basically said that the book of Hebrews is a treatise preached with a pen. That's what it is. It's a written sermon. Uh, that's, that's what we have here. And, he, and he's saying, put up with this sermon that I'm preaching to you. Some of the commentators suggested that this letter, and this is probably what was true, because now you understand the Hebrew community, everybody could read. Uh, but, uh, but in a lot of communities, they couldn't. And a lot of the letters were sent to the churches. And when I say that, I'm talking about most of these, most of these places didn't have a single place where they meet. They didn't have a big building like this where several hundred people came together. They met in homes. And, and uh, it was one church, but they met in several different locations, uh, and the elders oversaw each one of those house churches, and they would read the letter out loud uh, to the assembly. Uh, and basically, one commentator pointed out, this letter could be read easily in about an hour. So they probably how this letter was handled is it went to the churches and they read it out loud to each of these assemblies. And so he's saying, bear with what I've got to say. And then he goes on to say, uh, he calls in, in that he is calling them to devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ and to be satisfied with the new covenant, to understand the new covenant took the place of the old covenant. The old covenant is done in a couple of years. That's going to be obvious when Titus Epiphany destroys Judaism. And it hasn't come back, incidentally. There is no such thing as Judaism in its true sense today. And, and he, says, he, says, he, says, he says, be satisfied with the new covenant. And he says, I've written to you briefly. And he has. This is not a, this is not a lengthy letter. It's not as long as Romans. It's certainly not as long as a Corinthian letter. It's, 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 it's somewhat brief. And in fact, there's a number of places within the text where he indicates, I really want to say a whole lot more, but this, I'm going to cut it here, is kind of the idea. Uh, I would really like to go seven more points, but we'll leave it at three. Uh, at any rate, uh, in 5.11, he says, there is much more we have to say. In 9.56, 
<clears throat> he says he could say much more. And then in 1132, he says, what more should I say for time would fail me? That's what he's saying. He's saying I could go on and on and on and on. Uh, But uh, uh, he could have written a tome, in other words, is the idea he's trying to say. Uh, But he says, this is a letter. Uh, and I want you to receive it as such. I want you to hear it. I want you to pay attention to it. I want you to bear with it. I want you to put up with it. I want you to to take it in and think on it carefully. Those are the ideas he's trying to express in this last, in this la, in these closing verses. Then in verse twenty three, it's kind of an interesting insert. Some have suggested that this is really the form of a news release or maybe a postscript. Uh, uh, he says he says simply he says. You should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall uh, see you if he comes soon. It it kind of just is stuck in here. It says, hey, Timothy's been released, and uh, hopefully he's going to accompany me when I come to see you. That's kind of a shock kind of item here. He's wanting them to know uh, that that Timothy has been released. Now, we really don't have... any evidence to who this Timothy is, but more than likely, it's the only Timothy New Testament talks about. Uh, There's only one Timothy, unless he's talking about someone else here, there is no other Timothy mentioned in the New Testament. It would be Timothy who worked with Paul. It's the Timothy uh, who is very well known in the New Testament and in New Testament circles. It's the Timothy who helped Paul write some of his letters, who who did the... the writing out for him. It's the Timothy that Paul sent as an ambassador to Corinth. It's the Timothy that pastored the church at Ephesus. Uh, It's Timothy, Paul's son in the faith. It's Timothy, our dear brother, that Paul also refers to him as. Uh, And he basically, he is, he is, it is the Timothy who traveled to Rome with Paul in his first imprisonment, Philippians 1.1, Colossians 1.1, Philemon 1. It's, it's the Timothy that Paul asked to, for him to come to him quickly during his second imprisonment in 2 Timothy 4.9. Now the bottom line is this, nowhere in scripture do we have anything that tells us about Timothy being imprisoned. Uh, we we don't we don't have anything about that. Uh, it's not it's not anywhere in the text of Scripture. It's not unthinkable that since he traveled with Paul and he was with Paul, uh, that they might have arrested him as well when he was with him in Rome. It's well within the realm of reason that could have that could have happened. Now this word release is a term that is used in many ways, but it's most prominent. Use is released from custody, which is probably how it's being used here, although it could be released from service. But probably it means released from custody. Uh, that's you know, while Paul was in, under house arrest, wouldn't Timothy have been under house arrest with him? Or maybe or maybe not. Because he could receive visitors. So he could have been seen as a visitor. He could have been seen as a helper. He could have been seen as a hes- uh, an assistant. Or he, they could have just said, you know, here, you, you, you're under arrest too. I don't know. The text doesn't tell us. We would only speculate to say that. It's well within the realm of possibility. Okay. <clears throat> That's what we're saying here. 
But he's he's saying he's saying Timothy's been released for whatever reason, for wherever he was, whatever possibility of incarceration he may have had. Uh, he's saying Timothy has been released. Uh, then this is good news. Yeah. He's he's free. He's he's out to be able to minister once again. And so he says to them, you should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. The author here is expecting to catch up with Timothy, for the two of them to travel together, and for the two of them to travel together to see the Hebrews. Uh, that's, that's what he's saying to them here. I, I am hoping he will come with me. I, you, you think about this for a minute. Timothy is a well-respected person within the uh, Christian community. He's very well known. Uh, his support in coming to reconcile with a church that has been a little bit put out with the author would be a big help. Uh, it would be a big help. It's like, I'm bringing my buddy <laughs> with me, you know. He's coming with me. Uh, and that's, that's kind of what he's saying here. He's hoping that he can come to help them settle their differences, to ease the tension, and to, and to verify the truth that the author has been teaching. All of these things are, are going to be important. It, it, all of you who are parents probably have experienced this. You've told your kids something over and over again, and it went in this year and out that ear, and you never, and they never heard it. And then somebody else, an aunt, an uncle, a neighbor, somebody says the very same words you've been telling them for 10 years, and they come into you and tell you, guess what? <laughs> you know, and you look at them like, seriously? <laughs> well, I think that's what we got here. You know, I've been telling you this, but you're not listening to me. I got Timothy here. Now, listen to him. Hear it from him. Hear it from a second voice. You know, that's, that's, uh, that's, that's the idea here. That's the idea he's saying. Timothy is coming, hopefully to reunite the fellowship. That's his intent. I want to bring him with me when I come to see you. That's, that's, that's what he's saying here. And then he, goes, then he goes on and he says, Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those who come from Italy... Send you, the, send you greetings. So basically he's saying, say hello to. And he divides the congregation. He says, say hello to all your leaders. He's talked about leaders. This is the third time he's talked about leaders in these, in these closing remarks. The first time he told them to, pray, to, to remember, to bear in mind, to call to mind. Be mindful of, literally was the translation of the word remember in that case. He says, be mindful of those leaders who originally taught you the word of God. Those leaders by whom, under whose leadership you came to salvation. And the indication is these leaders have probably passed. Now, there may be some that were still around. I, was, I got to thinking about this. Given the age of this church, because we're in the, the mid to late 60s when this, when this text was written, uh, and these are Hebrews, these are Jewish people, these are people who came out of Judaism, uh, they would have they gone to Jerusalem during the holidays when, when, when the church was born on Pentecost in Acts 2. Some of them may still be alive, and among them who were actually there when the church was literally born, who may have stayed in Jerusalem for a while and been taught under the apostles. 
Um, and they were the ones who maybe came back and founded this church and, and had been the early leaders within this church. And some of them may have passed now. And some of them may have been, you know, in their late 60s or 70s and, and had passed at this point. And he, and he calls them to be mindful of them, to remember those people. Remember those people who taught you. And we talked about that when we went through that text about the people who made great impacts in our life. And he, he calls them to be mindful of those. And then in verse 17, he, he addresses their current leadership. And he tells them to obey and to submit. That's what he tells them. He says, he, says, he says to obey and submit to them because they give an account. They hold, they're held accountable. It's a serious thing to move into the eldership of the assembly of Jesus Christ. It's, it's, it's a, an awful responsibility. And I don't mean awful in the sense of terrible and burdensome. It can be if you have the wrong people under you. If you have the right people under you, it can be a joyous time and a liberating time and a time of great glory to our God. And that's what he's calling them to. That's what he's calling to their attention. Don't be a pain in the back to your elders. You know, that's what he's saying. Submit and obey. Listen to them. Don't be arguing with them all the time. And if there are issues, there are ways to deal with that. But given everything is equal, obey and submit to the current leadership. And here he says, greet them. Greet them. I send greetings to them especially. I single them out and I give greetings to those to those men who have put it all on the line for Jesus Christ. I, uh, when I was in seminary, we had an opportunity to uh, meet a man by the name of Gorgi Venz. Uh, Gorgi Venz was a Baptist pastor in Russia uh, during seriously bad times in Russia. And uh, uh, he was uh, sentenced uh, to hard labor in Siberia, and his crime was preaching the gospel. And he spent 20 years in a Siberia prison camp. And uh, during the Carter administration, when the dissidents were freed from Russia, he was one of the dissidents that got freed. And uh, he came to America. And uh, uh, he was literally, his, his heart was about to give out. He was, had serious heart disease at this point. And uh, he came to the seminary. I spoke Russian. It was a translator. And we asked him, we said, how does a church survive in Russia if they put the leaders in jail? And his answer was like, well, what's the matter with you guys? You don't know this? The next guy in line stands up. You know, you're, what, third or fourth in line? So if they start arresting... But at any, but at any rate, uh, that was that was it. The next guy in line stands up, and the church takes care of their family while they're in jail. That, you know that that's the way that's the way things work. It says it says submit and obey your leaders and greet your leaders now and greet those leaders on our behalf because they have a seriously important responsibility. He says, and then greet all the saints, greet all all the saints there. In, in in this Hebrews in these in these Hebrew congregations, give them our greetings. Pass along our love. That that's the idea that's that's being expressed here. He says, and it probably refers to all the saints in each of the house churches uh, that are gathered in that in that location. And then he makes this comment. He says, and this is one of the places where 
Five different combinators have five different answers. So we're just going to leave it at this, okay? He says, he says, he says, those who come from Italy send you greetings. Now, the ESV makes it indicate that there are with him those who are from Italy. Now, some have tried to make this say, some have tried to make this say, it was written from Italy. Some have tried to make it say, it was written to Italy. And some have tried to make it say that these are Italians traveling with him, which is the ESV's idea, which is probably right. But it doesn't matter. Uh, there's a group of saints who have some connection with Italy who are, wi- who are wishing greetings to these people. That's, that's what it's saying here. And he's basically saying there are others with me, other Christian believers, and they're all sending their greetings as well. We all greet you. That's what he's, that's what he's wanting them to understand at, uh, at, this, at this point. They greet you. And of course, that's traditional among believers. We greet fellow Christians. We have compassion and concern and love for our brethren. That's the idea here. We're not isolated little islands. We are a a universal community of believers, and that's what he is expressing here. Greet them. Greet them all, and those who are with me, greet greet you. And then finally, his final words is a, a very typical New Testament greeting at the end. Grace be with you all. Grace with be you, with you all. Uh, the author plans. Uh, 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 the author here asks for God's great grace on these readers. Titus chapter three verse fifteen. This, this is the same kind of idea that grace be with you all. Of course, it is because they are believers, but but it's it's a, a warm uh, greeting. To, clo- or to close the end of this book, he says, grace, uh, we all depend on grace. That's the ultimate end here. We all depend on grace. May grace be with us all. And of course, that's exactly what God does to his children through Jesus Christ. He sends grace. And with that, our author brings this book to a close. Christ is better and grace be to you all. Any comments or questions this morning? I'm losing my throat, but anyway. Yeah. Is there some is there some reason in scholarship that they think that we don't have the author of this book? Yeah, because we don't. But but is there some reason why the author would not have identified you know, himself? Probably, you know, the 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 well, that could be. But the most logical reason why the author didn't reveal himself is because everybody that the letter came to knew exactly who wrote it. Okay. I mean, the whole context of the letter says they knew who wrote it. Okay. They knew him. He didn't identify himself, which then 2000 years later we write volumes and commentaries about it. That's that's literally what happens. But but obviously obviously the readers knew who he was. They knew full well who it was. And and he's probably a second generation believer. He probably was a part of this church. He probably was an elder in this church. And uh, uh, which is why I would like it to be Paul. I personally, mm-hmm. but I'm pretty sure it's not. 
But it well could be someone, it well could be someone um, close to Paul, and probably was. It has a lot of Pauline characteristics, and it has a lot of non-Pauline characteristics. So, but anyway. Oh yeah, yeah. This guy, this guy. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, he knew. He knew. He knew his stuff. He knew the Old Testament, and, and incidentally, he's probably he probably is um, a non-Palestinian Jew, and he was obviously writing to non-Palestinian Jews because he used the Septuagint. All of his quotes are from the Septuagint. They're all from the Greek Old Testament, not from the Hebrew. So that all of those things kind of Paul was a. Old Testament scholar, he wouldn't have used Greek. <laughs> no, he wouldn't use the Septuagint. So, anyway, those are those are just some of the features of this book uh, that uh, that lead. There's a you know the, we started out. One of the, those of you who are just joining us, uh, we started we started out by saying in our introduction to this book that there's a lot of things we don't know about it. We don't know the author's name. We don't know for sure where he was when he wrote it. There is controversy about exactly where the Hebrews are that he wrote to. I tend to believe they're Grecian Hebrews, but I won't die on that cross. And and uh, uh, they're probably not Palestinian Hebrews, uh, because he would have used wouldn't have used the Septuagint, I don't think. I think he would have used the Hebrew text. But nevertheless, those, those, those there are things we just don't know. But it's apparent that the readers knew. They knew exactly who it was. And and he knew exactly who they are. So that's. Wouldn't he use the Septuagint because he because his audience were Greek Hebrews? That's what I'm thinking. That's my that's my I argument. I thought it was Paul because I thought Timothy was arrested with him and he threatened them. Not, that Timothy had been released. It's probably not Paul. While he was under arrest. Yeah, it's probably <laughs> it's probably not Paul. It's probably not Paul, and it's probably and it's obviously not Timothy. So at any rate, at any rate, at any rate, but nevertheless, it is the word of God and it's inscripturated and the Holy Spirit uh, inspired these words and it is filled with theological truth about Jesus Christ. So those are the uh, those are the important things. Uh, those are the important things to know. And the and the readers knew exactly who was writing to them. So we're we can rest assured in that. So let's uh, let's close. Lord God, we thank you this morning as we uh, as we have looked at the at the book of Hebrews. We thank you for the truths uh, that it has given to us about Jesus Christ, uh, the the reality of what it took to save us in, in His sacrifice, and and the result of that sacrifice uh, that now the door to heaven's throne is open. Uh, that we can be received, that we can come boldly before the throne of grace, and that one day we may be able to stand there in presence, not in, in physical presence, not just spirit. And Father, we, we thank you that, that Jesus in his sacrifice did it all. He took it away. Uh, there is no more sacrifice necessary. We are now found in his righteousness standing before you. And we thank you and we praise you in that. And Lord, may all the glory always go to our Lord Jesus and to you, our Father. And we thank you and we praise you in his name. Amen.